The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. From Beyond the Broadcast, a storytelling podcast devoted to showcasing the voices of writers and actors from marginalized groups within the genres of sci-fi and horror. Join critically acclaimed's own Whitney Seibold as Jam Handy as he dials into unusual radio content unlike anything found on your AM, FM dial. Tune in each episode as we pick up signals from far off planets, alternate timelines, and not so distant futures. Plus a few intergalactic fart jokes along the way. We know what you like. And it's not just because we've been watching you, William. From beyond the broadcast, streaming through your airwaves on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get critically acclaimed. Till then, stay tuned. everybody and welcome back to critically acclaimed the movie review podcast where good taste and bad taste collide yeah <laughs> like that my name is william bibiani i'm a critic everybody calls me bibs just like that my name is whitney seibold i too am a critic and i collide as well and uh, this week on Critically Acclaimed, we're reviewing a whole bunch of new movies. We're reviewing Monster Hunter, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Fatal, and Education. And over on the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club, where we take advantage of the fact that movies aren't in theaters right now, and try to focus on the back catalog of the various streaming services that we're using, we're reviewing... By our Patreon's request over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, the Alfred Hitchcock classic Dial M for Murder, which I had never seen until this week. And I was really upset that they didn't Dial M for Murder. I thought it was like a murder delivery business. Oh, yeah. Like it was like, th- that's like, a little it's more like high I, concept. I, I need, to, I need to like hire usually. an assassin and you dial like this one special code. And That's more mythos heavy than Hitchcock is yeah. usually interested in. But we'll talk about that in great mm. detail. It's a cool murder mystery. Uh, and uh, we will we will discuss it in the episode. And uh, and I saw Tenet. But, you did, uh, but William didn't. So we're gonna well, wait. It's, it's not new. Like, well, here's the plan for well, the next couple of weeks. It's new to us. It it's is fi- new to us. finally available to the, the general public. Exactly my point. Uh, next week on the critically acclaimed uh, main podcast, uh, we're going to do a big catch up episode. We'll review anything new that we saw. Wonder Woman's coming out, Promising Young Woman, but we're also going to dedicate it to some of the bigger releases throughout the year that we just didn't get a chance to get to, that we are catching up on before we do, the week after that, our best of the year list. Yeah. Uh, so that means that the streaming club is going to be put on the back burner for about two episodes, but it's going to come back with a vengeance in January because we have a lot of catching up to do. And then if you know anything about us, you know, our best of lists tend to run really long. <laughs> so it's like, you're going to spend like two and a half hours talking about the best movies of the year. And then another 20 minutes talking about hell comes to frog town too. Like it's going to be weird. So we'll just put that off a little bit. And there was a hell comes from frog, hell comes to frog town too. And three, uh, uh 
And I think once uh, once business is open again and we're no longer locked down, I think we might keep the streaming club. It might be a good a, idea. It might become a separate thing. It might okay. be like its own like little mini podcast yeah. or something. But I, like I do like it, and mm-hmm. it's been a real treat to catch up on. Look, we're we're film critics. We watch tons of movies. We watch a, a boatload of movies every year. Uh, but you know, there's always something. That you miss something yeah. that just zooms by you, and you never—you always say you're going to make time for it. And having the excuse to make time to catch up on something that, gosh dang it, you just never got to get to, is a treat. So mm. yeah, we'll probably we'll probably keep it around. I, I do like it a lot. And I think we've had some really good discussions and discoveries. Um, so with all that said, let's jump right in. Uh, where do you want to start, Whitney? Mm. Let, well, let's start with small X. Uh, yeah, let's do it. It's we, the last it's, week of Small Axe. Uh, Small Axe is uh, one film a week for five weeks, but directed by Steve McQueen as this uh, vast interconnected film project. Uh, because it was released to streaming, there's some debate. Is it TV? It's five films. It's uh, five movies. They're all feature length. Mm-hmm. They're all connected by a theme. They're all made by the same filmmaker, the same cinematographer. There's been some variation on like co-writers, but they're all... It, they're all of a piece, and I think that's something that sets it apart. And I do think that there is a little haziness. I can appreciate that hmm. in terms of how it was uh, presented as five distinct individual chapters. But for me, it boils down to this. If Steve McQueen had released one of these movies every year for five years, hmm. A, we'd be singing his praises. Yeah. For getting out so many amazing movies in such a small amount of time, all around one piece. What an incredible cinematic accomplishment. But because he did it all in five weeks, we're calling it a TV series. Well, like and, I don't considered, think and they're not serialized. They are their yeah. own stories, and they all have, they're all uh, thematically linked. But yeah, they're yeah. not about the same characters. And it doesn't feel like the Twilight Zone, where or, the, or even Tales from the Crypt, where... It's just, we're all coming here for the same thing week after week. Mm. No, these are distinct narratives. These are distinct, uh, uh, again, they have connective tissue. They're all connected to the same uh, community in England Mm. in the 1970s and 1980s. But they're their own thing. And I think it's fascinating. And I think it's very appropriate that this year, when theaters closed down after a few months, struggled to stay open, and people started consuming all of their media, movies and TV and anything else you can think of, the same way at home, that one of the most interesting cinematic accomplishments is something that really blurred that line. I don't think we really have a great word for what small acts is. Uh, I, I call it a film cycle. There you go. That's, that's a great that's way to put it. That's what I'm going to call it. Yeah, it, it, that's a it great is, way to put it. It is a like cycle that. of films. Uh, yeah, the much same like way. the Decalogue. The Decalogue was a cycle of yeah. films. Uh, uh, you could even make the argument that uh, some film, films that are bundled together, like uh, Ingmar Bergman's Silence of God trilogy, could be considered a cycle of films. Yeah, they made them in a shorter period of time, and they're all thematically linked. They're films from the same <clears throat> filmmaker. They're films mm. that belong together, but they're not interconnected in yeah. a narrative way. They're interconnected in a thematic way. Uh, and, and, and that's rare, but it happens. It, and this is also something that uh, we as Americans get a little hung up on, because in the United States, we're uh, a little bit more uh, stringent about what is film and what is television, whereas in other countries... Uh, and I'm thinking of things like Fanny and Alexander, which was mm. a TV miniseries when it came out in Sweden, but it was released theatrically in the States. So yeah. 
but I think it's considered cinema in both countries. Well, they're using the same cinematic language. Yeah. Same with the, yeah. same with the scenes from *A Marriage* and other yeah. uh, big TV projects. *World yeah. on a Wire*, the uh, uh, Fassbender science fiction film slash miniseries, mm-hmm. uh, *Berlin Alexanderplatz*. The, uh, there's been a lot of things that have tripped between the two internationally, well, and this is another international well, project. Well, like look look at even so, it's something like mm-hmm. uh, Quentin Tarantino has been like. Adding footage to Hateful Eight and releasing mm. it as like on, in like TV miniseries format. Although, is it still mm. a movie? Yeah, uh, I think so. I guess if you want to distinguish between the two cuts, you could say one is the miniseries yeah. cut. But basically, I think we're. I think the, what it boils down to is we're a little too hung up on everything has to be all or nothing. Yeah, is small acts filmmaking mm. that I think we can all agree on. Is it a movie? Yes. Is it a TV show? It's presented as one. If well, you if you is... want if you if you want to submit it for both the Emmys and the Oscars, knock yourself out. But for me, again, I think is there a distinction? I might make one. I'm not sure I would qualify Twin Peaks: The Return as a movie since it's serialized and that mm-hmm. feels more ingrained in televised entertainment. On the other hand, I got to say after experiencing small acts and I caught up on mangrove by the way and holy shit that's good <laughs> I'm glad you like it I loved yeah. it I saw that movie at like 1.30 in the morning I was like oh I should put on mangrove and yeah maybe I'll fall asleep halfway through it but then I'll finish it tomorrow I was riveted I was just stood up I stayed up all fucking night watching yeah. mangrove it was great but like I think after watching small acts I think the divide means a lot less to me well we've been in this hazy period uh, for a while now yeah, I think so. Between, you know, because of what Netflix does and because of what a lot of these streaming services are mm-hmm. doing with their original programming mm-hmm. and original uh, films. Yeah, well, we're going to release all 10 and, hours yeah. of Daredevil as one big movie. I watched that shit in a day. It was a marathon. It was fun. And it felt like a big movie. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's the, the a lot of TV narratives have been sort of gigantic arcs anyway. Mm-hmm. So they kind of resemble just gigantic long movies. A lot of uh, studios are trying to encourage publicists to talk about TV shows as if they're movies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the distinction between cinema and television is closer than ever. And this year now that everything's indoors and the idea of going to a cinema is so anathema to uh, a lot of pe- people. people who want to stay healthy, uh, that we're in a point where we just have to kind of accept that this is the next evolution of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's something that a lot of critics, myself included, have been kind of resisting for a while because mm-hmm. the cinema experience is so valuable. But there's nothing like wrong or incorrect there's a mo- about or, or or even uh doomsaying mm-hmm. about trying to accept with grace something that might be in the next inevitable evolution. Becoming more adaptable is, has become the new uh, word of the day. I feel like what happened is we were on a cycle that looked like it was going to see the gradual de-escalation of the theatrical experience mm. over the course of 10 or 20 years. And because of this year, we might have to do it almost all at once. Yeah. Now, yeah. It, again, there are vaccines going out. I hope they all work great. I plan to get one myself as soon as I'm able to, and I'm not mm. taking it away from people who need it more. But I... Uh, Again, theatrical will probably come back a bit. Will it come roaring back? I honestly don't know. Damn, yeah. And if it does, cool. And maybe that'll that'll like slow down the, that de-escalation. But it, we might just be in a place where they're equal, or even the theatrical experience feels a little secondary for non-event films. Mm-hmm. And that's bittersweet, kind of sad, and also 
dude, I'm almost 40. Shit changes. And <laughs> yeah, I, dude, I, I, we still have the movies. The TV experiences at home are getting better and more cinematic and more effective every day. And again, I get people who are mourning it. I get people who are mad. I don't think I have the energy to be mad anymore. That doesn't mean it's not valid. I just think mm-hmm. I'm like, I think I've just come to like accept that like, uh, it's here to stay. You know, what are you going to oh, yeah. do? Make, yeah, we got to make the most of it. And there's some exciting stuff hmm. to be had with it. There's some good and bad with uh, any change. And, and, uh, and again, availability is a really good part of this. Yeah. You know, Amazon is this gigantic bazillionaire company that has access to, that has uh, the wherewithal to distribute the small axe films. You can, yeah. with your prime uh, video subscription, you can see these small axe movies. Yeah. And much like Disney, there's a lot of negative with the company, but they're putting out good stuff sometimes. Yeah. So and we th- celebrate this, this that, is something yeah. they've you know picked up. And the thought that uh, a, a young person in a remote area of, of like the state of Mississippi can see, I don't just arbitrarily select a state. Okay. Uh, can now see all of the small axe movies. This yeah. was something that maybe would be shown like at a museum or an art house in just New York and LA. Yeah. That's that. that now, I think now, is the thing. Know, I don't think it's a matter even... of picking on Mississippi. I think it's a matter of, cause or, I just or, know or, someone's going to be pissed, but like, okay. But okay. Like, Iowa or Idaho or, or Canada or, or Alaska some, or, somewhere or whatever. Else. But like, just, that's the point. They, a lot of yeah. these smaller art house, like Oscar contender kind of movies, these really classy mm-hmm. films, they don't get gigantic wide releases they get small academy award qualifying runs and then maybe a slightly bigger release in january and if that doesn't seem like it's working very well then they'll just stop doing that yeah um so yeah all of a sudden everyone can appreciate all of these movies simultaneously and i think it's something that we you know when we praise the cinematic experience we sometimes forget that for a lot of people accessibility is a serious issue and i don't just mean in terms of not having theaters in your area there are a lot of people who because movie theaters aren't necessarily well designed don't necessarily have access to the theaters anyway there are disability yeah. uh, uh, issues in terms well, of like what is actually mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know th- theaters sometimes suck you know? Theaters can suck, and yeah. I, I and uh, one of the biggest arguments against theaters that I've heard that I really can't refute is that they've gotten too expensive. The, you know, you at, your average movie ticket, I'd have to look up the actual average price. I think it's hovering somewhere around nine dollars, but you can spend twenty five bucks for a single ticket for a single movie. Well, it depends on when. Like if you're mm-hmm. if you average in like the first screening of a day, which is usually the cheapest, and then you have like the premium screenings at night. Yeah, you might get a slightly lower number, but like. One adult ticket to an AMC in mm. Los Angeles will cost you almost as much as $20. Yeah. And that's a lot. And if you go to see, again, if you're taking the family, mm. you're taking three to four people, that's a major expense. So, yeah, that's, so, that's almost a single ticket to Disneyland. <laughs> so I totally get why people are excited about being, oh, we can see Wonder Woman at home. Mm-hmm. Okay, we won't get to see it on the big screen as it was intended, and that does suck. On the other hand, we saved $100 yeah. doing yeah. that. That is not insignificant, mm-hmm. and that is an economic reality so, yeah, in which we live. So now we're in this economic reality where people who can afford a streaming subscription, considerably less expensive than mm-hmm. a movie ticket, can now see a lot of these art house 
mm-hmm. films that critics typically rave about, a lot of but the... usually don't get wide theatrical releases. Yeah, and they can get a lot more buzz. Granted, mm-hmm. they sometimes disappear, and it's our responsibility to talk about them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but um, the other thing that I think is, and, and people bring this up a lot, like, oh, how is Warner Brothers expecting to make money off of this? All that kind well, of thing. First of all, why do you care what Warner Brothers is doing? First of all, who cares? Exactly. Yeah. That's that. <laughs> we don't make money off of it. It's not our job. Mm-hmm. But if you are concerned about that, think of it this way. Most movie studios have tentpole releases. They have a handful, six, seven, if you're a bigger studio, maybe eight or nine giant movie releases every year. And with they're aiming to make between $500 million and a $1 billion for each of those. They don't. Mm. Now, what's happening in all the other weeks when those movies aren't in theaters? Not a lot. <laughs> like, they're not necessarily even making their money back on some of those films. So having a regular subscription where people are guaranteed to give them the price of one or two tickets every month when previously they might only go see one of those studios movies in theaters every three months. It's actually probably going to work out pretty well for them in the long run. So I, as much as I think that in the, the the, the longer the drama of the big opening is gone. That's true. The the, the excitement of, and it broke records, but that we might lose that. Someone, someone put it, made a point and I actually got kind of wistful about it because like, Oh my God! What if no movie literally will ever make more money than Avengers Endgame again? Yeah, like and it's, it's going to be the biggest yeah. hit forever. Yeah, now. and there's something kind of sad about that. Not because Avengers Endgame is bad. I like Avengers Endgame, but because there won't be another movie at this rate that has that kind of zeitgeist. Yeah, that kind it's, it's of everyone's gonna, talking about. It's not going to you know? rat- rattle us in the same way. It's not going to be the same thing. So that's kind of bittersweet. That would but, suck. Uh, but but you know. But what I appreciate about this new model is that something like Small Axe can get a little bit of a rattle. Yeah. And you can go on film Twitter and hear a lot of people having very reactions to these five movies. Uh, this fifth film, let's finally get to it. Yeah. Uh, it's called Education. And boy, howdy, this one broke my heart. Yeah, we had the first two <clears throat> small X movies. And again, I missed Mangrove when it came out. I caught up mm. to it. Mangrove is a fucking banger. Mangrove <laughs> is a four star, mm. one of the best legal movies I've seen in a long time. I can't remember the last legal movie I saw that was that good. Like, well, I can't. Did, I saw Trial of the Chicago 7, but that's not as good. Um, yeah, well, there you go. I'm talking about that good. Like I'm talking about the last, that good. Just the last courtroom drama. I'm, I'm not I'd saying there haven't been good courtroom dramas, but when was the last time you saw a courtroom drama that was as good as Mangrove? <laughs> it's been, been a, a while. while. Yeah. So that was amazing. Lover's Rock is its own transcendent thing. Mm-hmm. And then we had two in a row which were good. Like, really, 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 really <laughs> I, good. I and if they like were, Alex Wheatle more than most people, but yeah, yeah I, I liked Alex Wheatle a lot. I, think, I, uh, I liked Red, White, and Blue a lot mm-hmm. as a cop drama, but just, you know, they, maybe they weren't, like, pushing the boundaries of cinema as much as the others. And so, you know, I felt like we just sort of got a bit of a lull, and then we just go right back up to the top again with education. Mm. And education is really painful um, to watch in a good way. It takes place in the 1970s at some point. Uh, I I don't think they get the actual Actually, I think it was like really early 80s. Maybe so. I I thought I heard them say something about 81, but anyway. The only thing I really had to go on was an obscure British cartoon show that one kid was watching, and I looked it up (laughs) to get like a timeline, and it was from the 70s. Okay. So it's the late 70s, early 80s, and the main character is a boy of about 12, uh, his name is Kingsley. He's played by an actor named Kenya Sandy. And he is uh, slipping through the cracks, as it were. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is going to a, a an average British school 
and he doesn't know how to read. Yeah. And nobody has really called him out on that. He's just sort of coasting. And there's the one time we see like kids reading in class. And you know, like you read in class, like someone reads a sentence mm. or a paragraph, then you pass the book around, another person reads a sentence. Mm. And there's there's people with varying degrees of comfort with that. And they reach him, and he's really struggling. And rather than the teacher teaching him, he just calls. I think he calls him like a blockhead or something yeah. like that. Just just an, an insult. Insults, insults him. Calls him dumb. And, yeah. Uh, and they move on to the next student. Yeah, there's no actual care yeah. being and, taken. Uh, when they finally give him uh, off screen, they give him an IQ test. Yeah. And it turns out that he didn't test very high. Well, of course he didn't test very high. He can't read. Yeah. Uh, and so he gets pegged as one of the dumb kids uh, by the school administration. They, they call him dumb to his face. Yeah. Uh, they call him dumb to his mother. Mm-hmm. And they say, we have to put him in a special school. Now... Special school doesn't mean he's going to get the education he needs. Not in this case. Uh, it means it's a kind of like a, a glorified daycare where uh, the kids who have been categorized for whatever reason, not able to uh, learn in schools, they're unruly, they're difficult. Mm-hmm. All of these words and, are... And, also, and mm-hmm. also whatever issues they may or may not have, they're all thrown together. Yeah, it doesn't and, matter and they're, if they're if they're if they could be they could have nothing wrong mm. whatsoever. They could have no learning disabilities, they, they could, or and they, they could, could have be, a, yeah, they a wide be. variety of different kinds, and that they're just sort of thrown into mm. the same room and just expected to go about their day yeah, the, with uh, barely any attempt to teach them. the uh, The scene that that made me cry mm. was the scene where the teacher and it, it's almost like a comedy scene like something from the office mm-hmm. where the teacher is singing the house of the rising sun on his acoustic guitar for the yeah. class which is it's kind of not like, an appropriate song for kids if you really pay attention yeah. to the lyrics it's a little dark the house of new orleans they call the rising sun and uh he's just singing this thing whole damn and song the, the kids are just sort of sitting there staring at him yeah. and kingsley has fallen asleep and, he've, and each time you think he's going to be done, he does another verse of the goddamn song. Because that's a really long and, song. And you realize that he's just sucking up time. Uh, he's not paying any attention. Yeah. These kids are losing out because and, this jerk wants to sing an animal's song. Well, and, 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 and the punchline to the scene, which is funny but also fucked up, yeah. is when he's done, it's just like, okay, who knows who wrote, who knows who wrote that? Hmm. As if that's what's important yeah. right who, now. Who wrote the House of the Rising Sun? It's, it's, it's like if, if you learn anything anything from this class, yeah, like you will know mm-hmm. House of the Rising Sun by the time we're done, right? Okay, and, uh, we're cool. All right. And of course, uh, all of the words that we heard earlier about being uh, difficult or unruly or unable to pay attention these are all racially coded words. Yes, they are. Uh, and how uh, we we eventually learn his uh, Kingsley's mother. Eventually, mm-hmm. let me look up the actress who played Kingsley's mother. Um, uh, I think it's uh, Charlene White. Yeah, Charlene White uh, plays Agnes, his mother, who at first is uh, just sort of frustrated that he's not doing well in school. Mm-hmm. But, she has a lot of responsibility. Yeah. She has to raise the kids. Or the the father isn't a particularly attentive parent, and, the and also who, she's working as well. Yeah, so everybody's working. They just need him to go to school and not get in trouble and get good grades. And yeah. if he passes on, that's enough for them. Yeah, and uh, she, uh, someone calls her, her attention to the fact that these, quote, special schools aren't schools at all. And yeah. that all of these, uh, a lot of the people who are shunted off there are 
uh, well, they're also uh, West Indian immigrants, just like Kingsley's parents. And there is this cycle of racial oppression that is being folded into the educational system. Yeah, Uh, the assumption is made mm -hmm. that these students are not able to learn, so people don't try, and then they don't learn as much as the other kids, mm-hmm. and then a couple of grades down the line, they've fallen so far behind that they are able, that they are now allowed to send them off to a different school where they don't have to treat them well, at which point, and they specifically talk about this, there are like specific mm-hmm. rules about if you've gone to this school, what kind of job you're allowed to hold afterwards and your mm. options are incredibly limited. Yeah, and you can only, like, cheap labor jobs and yeah. blue-collar blue stuff. Like, yeah, not... it's it's doom. Mm. It's doom, basically. It's, it's... You are doomed if you're if you're uh, in this system. And yeah, this... it's horrifying and real. Mm. It's this, a thing. It's It's, so it's a thing. Uh, this is actually a story I heard from my own mother a yeah. couple times. She told me about how... Uh, she had uh, some trouble with certain things in school and she was put in the dumb classes. Yeah. She wasn't given the attention she needed. Yeah. She wasn't educated. By the, way, by the way, I want to make it clear here. Dumb is actually a very offensive term when yeah, we're talking about right. disability. This is... We're using it in the context of which... But just to so be clear, I, I, it, it I, I, is... I hope it comes across that I am using it in the context of this conversation. Yeah, but we should we but... should actually try to avoid using it All in, right. in this way, okay. I think. it's It's... It, it's the, the it's the dickish way to put that. Okay, uh, yeah. So let's, I, let's I, I apologize then yeah. if I, if I was a little brash. Um, but my my mother talked about being put in these remedial classes yeah. and how uh, that puts you on a certain kind of educational track where less is expected of you, and if less is expected of you, you're not going to learn as much. Exactly. Uh, and uh, it's something that is very much on my mind because I have a five-and-a-half-year-old who's in kindergarten right now mm-hmm. who's doing Zoom classes, and it's a concern of mine that he might not be getting uh, what he needs from a Zoom class. I don't think yeah. any student is necessarily talk to any any parent. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a bad situation yeah. right now. It's not fair to anybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so uh, all of these things were swimming around in my head while this guy is singing uh, The House of the Rising Sun. <laughs> Just wasting those kids' <laughs> yeah. time. Oh, it was brutal. So uh, it's it's uh, heartbreaking and true. The characters are fictional, but this was a, a real scenario. And the pamphlet they read in uh, education yeah. was a real pamphlet. And the film also... Uh, takes great pains to make sure Kingsley is a kid with a lot of personality. Yeah. He actually has his own concerns and he has his own fears about how he's getting his education. He's a great kid. He's Mm -hmm. a bright kid, but yeah, he's really interested in like astronomy and space and numbers. He's got all, it's undeniable Mm. that he is engaged and bright, but he has fallen behind in an order to, and he's, and, and there's a beautiful, beautiful bit towards the end where they're, they have all these meetings with the parents and they say, listen, we can't change the system from within as fast as we need to mm. in order to rescue the education of these kids and help them catch up to their classes and actually, you know, do better in school and then later on. Uh, what we can do right now is we can offer additional schooling mm. for next to nothing on the weekends, which, you know, every and there's a bit where Kingsley's just like, I got to go to school on the weekend, too. But then we get to see how good school can be <laughs> with teachers who are engaged and mm. actually like paying attention to the way students learn and catering lesson plans to the interests and personalities and backgrounds of the people involved. And there's something so 
I, I'm almost going to cry just thinking about it. Just so beautifully cathartic about seeing education working mm-hmm. and that yeah. it is possible. And it's, I, I grew up, uh, both of my parents were involved in public school education. Mm-hmm. And they both busted their asses every single day, desperately trying to help educate people within that system. And that system... Sometimes it means well, and sometimes it's a nightmare bureaucracy in which it's almost impossible to imagine anyone learns anything Mm. because it's just there's there's a lot that doesn't work about it. But there's a lot of people within it that are desperately trying and to see just like this sort of dream of how school should be and how easy it could be to to achieve that Mm -hmm. just broke my heart. And. I love this movie very, 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 very yeah, much. So this yeah. is this is. I feel like you, you you were talking about how Mangrove and Lovers Rock have like sort of sucked up all the attention and um, yeah, and Red, White, and Blue, which may be a little bit more straightforward, maybe didn't get as much love. And Alex Weedle, which I, I still don't love that one. It's still a very interesting mm-hmm. biopic in and of itself. But this 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 cycle has gone out on I think a very important note. Yeah, and um, it's great. And uh, the other thing I love about most of uh, these small axe movies is, um, with the exception of Mangrove, which is like over two hours, it's a big epic movie. Uh, they're they're short. Yeah, they're not shorts because a short film by Academy standards is less than forty minutes long. These are the kind like one of hour and seven minutes. These it? are the kind movies used to be. Between like 60 and 80 minutes consistently in like the 30s. And if you see a good film from that era, you'll realize you don't need more time than that. You mean you might, but you don't necessarily need more time than that. You can tell a fantastic story that feels rich and dense in that amount of time. And I am endlessly impressed with how Steve McQueen is able to tell full, rich narratives within running times that would make, I think, a lot of filmmakers nervous. Because a lot of filmmakers tend to just sort of let themselves go crazy with the amount of runtime that they can have because, you know, you get to put everything in. It's like when people are talking about how, like, oh, yeah, there was a there was a four hour work print of Justice League. That's literally all the footage they shot. You're supposed to cut that down. <laughs> That's every why they call work, it a work print. print. It's the print you're working on. Every work print. People, if you don't know the, the, the expression, when you're editing a movie, and not every editor works this way, but most tend to. When you're editing a movie, you take all the footage that has been shot, every single piece of it, every single scene, every single bit, of of establishing shot, every bit of dialogue, Even, every all the angles, every yeah, every viable take, mm-hmm. and you put them all together, and you see this giant lumbering behemoth of a film, which I have to say the way Stephen Wright says it in, in Reservoir Dogs, I don't know why, but <laughs> you have to you put them all together, and the movie, even in like sh- movies that end up being like ninety minutes long. The work print is commonly over three hours long. Mm. And then you go, don't need that, don't need that, don't need that. That can be shorter. That's redundant. Don't need that. Don't need that. If you're working on a documentary, often those things can be like 10, 30, 40 hours long. I I don't know how Ken Burns does it. (laughs) I don't understand how he manages his time. I don't get it. But like. I like to think that Frederick Wiseman just. His secret is that he just leaves it all in. Maybe. Like, he just doesn't. 
winnow it down from the four hour cut. He like, might just si- have his film City Hall came out this he's year. Been, it's four and a half hours. He's long. been doing it for so long. He might just have a sense of it. I uh, there was an editor. Um, I think it was Patrick Lussier. Hold on. Okay. Uh, I was listening to the commentary track for Wishmaster of all things. Right. Uh, <laughs> I, I like Wishmaster. Uh, and uh, nice he, gory flick. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, he. Uh, Patrick Lussier got his start as an editor and he edited films like Wes Craven's New Nightmare and uh, Scream and Halloween H2O and uh, um, yeah and he worked on when he in his commentary track for Wishmaster which a memory service he directed the first one My, okay am I have I gone that sounds familiar no, no I think no, I'm just, I think I'm just confusing with something else anyway Maybe it wasn't him, but in any case, I was I was listening to a commentary track with Patrick Lussier, and uh, he was talking about how God help me getting this right. Uh, he actually does the opposite of a work print, okay, where he would put together only the bare bones of a movie, and then see what's missing. Oh, all right. So like, okay, here's just the main plot points. No fat on it whatsoever. I'm not going to start with a work print. We we don't have the time for that. Well, Robert, I'm just going to put in Kurtzman directed Wishmaster. Yeah, I don't. I'm trying to remember. I, it was something. Anyway, uh, but I might have been listening to a commentary track for something else he did, like My Bloody Valentine or something. But uh, but yeah, he was talking about how when he was an editor, he would often start with that, and uh, that I think is really interesting. I think mm-hmm. that's an interesting way to approach it. That is a little different, and I don't know a lot of people who have. Uh, described working that way. So, uh, anyway, moving on. Um, education, Edu- education is, is fantastic. Is, is great. It really is really great. great. This whole cycle has been really fascinating. I think yeah. they are all of a piece. They all complement one another. Yeah. And it's okay to accept them all as one singular uh, film project. It's a, it's it's an accomplishment to have released five amazing movies to varying degrees perhaps but nevertheless um at at all Mm. and to have done so in a year is pretty fucking phenomenal so uh anyway small acts ended very very well uh even if you want to put it this way even the worst and i use air quotes installment of small acts is still really good Yeah, yeah um moving on uh let's take a hard left turn okay into monster hunter oh boy this is the new paul uh, paul thomas anderson movie you done yeah that's that, that was my only joke i didn't yeah. see this one tell me about okay. monster hunter uh monster hunter is a new film from paul ws anderson who i honestly think both of them should just go by paul anderson now just to confuse people? No, I think they should just admit that they're one being. Like when, <laughs> like there's the Paul Anderson who does like these really heady films, like The Master mm. and and Phantom Thread, and and then there's the the Paul Anderson like who's like the Jekyll and Hyde version of him who just wants to make the fun schlock, just the schlockiest mm. movies he possibly can on the biggest scale he possibly can, and. I'm really, really, really divided on Paul W.S. Anderson. I am, because he's made some crap. He's, he's made some real crap. I'll, I'll say this. He he makes energetic crap. Exactly. Uh, I'm, I'm fond of uh, Event Horizon. I, I, I'm I remember, not, actually, yeah. but I know a lot of people love that uh, one. Yeah. I, I'm not a fan of, like, 
Pompeii, which was like his biggest bomb. <laughs> I, I uh, think Pompeii is so much fun. It's so Ke- over Keeper, the top and Keeper melodramatic. Sutherland is having a good time. I, I have a good time the, uh, watching Pompeii. I the, think that movie's underappreciated, the, but it's very the silly. Sam Worthington knockoff lead leading actor in that one. Kit Harrington. Kind of, Kit Harrington is kind of boring in that movie. There's a scene in which he he uh, there's a, you know the scene in the movie where the hero meets the the leading lady, mm. and uh, there's a oh, moment God. where it's like one of the best moments. Of, like you know the hero meets the leading lady and their eyes lock or mm. like there's something really sexy about it like the fountain and pride and prejudice something like that and like in 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 pompeii the scene where where he meets i think it's emily browning in that movie right it is it's emily browning yeah. yeah he meets emily browning and she's like the daughter of like a roman senator or something and she's in like a chariot or whatever and they're riding along and they're one of their horses falls uh uh you know it hurts its leg and uh, kit harrington is in charge of snapping the horse's neck but he does it while looking at her real sexy like and yeah, it's and like, like look how strong i am. i can break a horse's neck with my bare hands mm. while i give you the eye but uh, paul ws anderson also did uh, alien versus predator he did yeah. uh most of the resident evil movies uh yeah i think i think all but two of them mm. and um boys had a franchise that i actually didn't like the way it started because i thought they kind of not that the games are particularly good storytelling, <laughs> but they had a particular tone, and I don't think he was on that wavelength. He was going for something different. He, he, movie, just, yeah. he just turned it into his own thing. And at first I was kind of offended by that. I'm like, why even bother? Just make your own thing. But after a while, his movies got so absurd. They're, they're, I kind of those, admired the, them. Those films get... Like, by the time you're rolling around on, like, the third or the fourth one, it's uh-huh. like... What, what the There's hell is There's an army of happening? psychic Milyoviches in the yeah, fourth there's... one. The fifth one takes place in an underground bunker that is like perfectly recreated multiple countries and it's full of clones of characters from previous films. But, and who but gives it's, a shit? It's the post but, it's yeah, it's the, but it's the post-apocalypse and there's nobody alive on the surface and yet yeah. somehow they're still doing these clone experiments under the ground and for reasons no that are never explained. Be- there's no continuity between movies at all. And mm. you're all made by the same guy. There's no excuse <laughs> for that. And, it's and just course, kind of astonishing. Paul W.S. Anderson and that uh, series star, Emilio Jovovich, are married. Yep. And so they work well together. They enjoy mm. making movies together. Good for them. So, great. Good. As long, if they're happy, mm. I'm happy. And, and honestly, like... You can tell that Paul W.S. Anderson, like, wants the audience to revere mm-hmm. Miljovic as an action icon. I just wish he had as better... he does. I wish he had better mm-hmm. scripts for her. Because <laughs> she can handle that. She's mm-hmm. a very talented actor, actually. When she gets a real role that isn't just, you know, CGI mayhem, she's great. And she can handle the CGI mayhem better than most other actors. Like, she looks at home in these absurd environments mm. more so than a lot of the actors in like the star wars movies like she's good at this by now um so you tell me they're making another thing together i'm like cool and um, the new thing that they're making together probably be big dumb schlocky and full of energy ah, i wish it was bigger actually and that's uh. kind of the problem here where this one feels like you threw a lot of money at a sci-fi original script Oh, like the, it's designed around not having money, but they threw money at it anyway. Hmm. It's a very odd project. So Monster Hunter is based off of a series of video games, which were incredibly popular in Japan hmm. for a long time and not so popular in America. And then they finally broke out over here. And um, 
Uh, I played them a little bit. I, it's not the kind of game I usually enjoy, but basically, you hunt monsters, and you're in like this fantastical. Name, yeah. You're in this fantastical kind of medieval Lord of the Rings type world, and. Uh, there are monsters of varying sizes, and as you get better at hunting monsters, you can hunt gigantic leviathans, and there's something really cool about that in a Shadow of the Colossus kind of way. Um, it lends itself well to a motion picture. The pl- it's, a lot of it that I played anyway was largely plotless, so you can kind of put any plot on there as long as you're hunting big monsters you're in. So here's the plot. Miljovovich is the leader of a squad of army rangers. So already we're completely changing everything. All right. (laughs) They are investigating a disappearance of another squad of army rangers who we have never met, nor will we ever meet, who have disappeared for reasons we don't understand on a mission that is not important and will never be mentioned. They... This Monster Hunter or Tenet? This is... (laughs) Zing. Uh, they they go to the desert where there's like, oh, they're not here. And then there's a big storm cloud. And they're like, oh no, there could be bad guys behind that storm cloud. We'd better we'd better drive away from it. And that's when they end up driving through a whole bunch of archaeological thingamawatsits that all start collecting lightning. And they're like, well, this probably isn't good. And then they <laughs> fall off a cliff and then they land in another desert. And in this desert... There's more sand, and eventually they run into, like, that big crate dragon skeleton from Tatooine, and they're like, well, that's not good. And then a giant monster attacks them, and they're like, we're gonna die, and most of them do. Um, Which one is the monster hunter? Mila Jovovich is the monster hunter. Mila Jovovich. Basically, I I got excited because there's actually, like, a a not a bad ensemble cast. Mm. Uh, but uh, they're all dead within half an hour, except for Mila Jovovich, and it's kind uh, of it's kind of disappointing. Um, she doesn't even have like a, a sidekick, or I'll get to that in know. a second. I, I do want to point out an incredibly wonderful dialogue exchange that happens <laughs> early on because they find the the team they're looking for, mm. but they're dead and they're charred to pieces, and they're just like, "What could have done this?" And dudes like flamethrowers i don't know fire what do you what do you want (laughs) they're just like yeah but they're like really fired and they're like okay cool so here's the actual dialogue i know i tend to like paraphrase for comedic effect um it's glass they're like there's glass all over the place in this desert and one guy says it's glass emil jovovich says uh when sand melts it turns into glass and the guy's like what could melt sand and emil jovovich says and I'm like, fire! Fire will do that! What are you, what are you doing? Oh my God. You literally just said it! I don't, what do you, mean? you don't know! What, what, what could melt sand? I don't know, bread? Like, <laughs> there aren't too many answers. It just, it feels like almost every scene of this movie feels like not even a first draft. It feels like an outline for the scene. <laughs> it's very frustrating. They fight a whole bunch of monsters, and I will say this right now. Say what you will about this movie. The the dialogue is awful. The plot is practically non-existent. The monsters look cool. Okay. I will say that. The monsters look legit. The monsters look like they spent real money mm-hmm. on them. There's a giant... Um, a lot of them are like from the game and they have names that I can't remember mm-hmm. that sound like Pokemon. But like... Calithrax. Ralathor or whatever like that. But like... They look fucking cool. And the whole basic, there's like a whole hive of like giant arachnid monsters that like, 
you know, put lay their eggs in some of like Mila Jovovich's friends, and they all like you know oh, kind of fun. burst yeah. up and with giant spider babies, and that's real gross. Um, there's this giant like hulking like King Kong with thorns who can also burrow not with thorns with horns mm. who can also burrow in sand. And he's like preventing them from like making their way across the desert because he's really? and he's and he's gigantic. Where were these things when they were making Pacific Rim? These right? are really fun. They're cool. And then the, and then later on, there's like a giant dragon type thing. But like, mm. they're cool. They're threatening. I like all of that. That's mm. awesome. Uh, but the majority of the story is uh, Mila Jovovich ends up teaming up with uh, one of the locals, someone mm. from this dimension, uh, played by Tony Jaa. Oh, cool. Does yeah. He, does he have a cool fight scene? No. He has an then, okay fight scene. Then why did you hire Tony Ja? <laughs> it's it's really, 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 really frustrating because... Uh, T- Tony Ja, one of the premier uh, martial yeah. artists working in film today. Yeah. He had uh, he had a, a couple of real big breakout films, which are just fucking phenomenal. See, uh, see the first Ong Bak film. Ong Bak can, one yeah. is great. The sequel's not so much. The Protector is pretty fucking amazing. Like there's a, it's, the plot's kind of ludicrous. It's all about it. So someone steals his elephant. and uh, But there's some, some action sequences in The Protector which are just chef's fucking kiss. Like, holy cow. What mm. an incredible action thing is. And I felt like he never quite got another good project again after that kind of like... Well, he got paid. He was in one of the Fast and Furious movies, wasn't he? Wasn't he was, Tony he was, John one of those movies? Tony John was in Triple X 3. Okay. He was which in, admittedly right. plays like a Fast and Furious movie and is actually would be one of the better Fast and Furious movies. That movie's actually a delight. Um, but yeah, he just he never quite got another good breakout action role. And I don't know why, but... Um, yeah, so it's cool that he's here, and you want to see him fight Mila Jovovich, who isn't like, you know, an expert martial artist as far as I know, but she's a good American action tough person, and you would expect them to fight, and they do, and they cut around it a lot, oh. and it just, like, anyone could have done the what they still, did. Based, still and far back. Please, it's Tony Jaa, let him work. Like, let him do what he does, for God's sake. Ridiculous. It's like we're gonna we got uh, Mozart. We want you to come in and um, serve drinks. Can I play the piano? You can play chopsticks. All right. Like that's what you got. It's so oh weird. Uh, but for a bit there, because they don't speak the same languages from this another dimension or whatever, and they're just kind of like trying to communicate and they fight, and then they realize they have to team up to fight the monster, and they have to come up with various different plans to trap the monster and everything, and they yeah, a giant monster. For a while, it plays like Enemy Mine with Mila Jovovich and Tony Jaa. And for a brief while, that's pretty cool. <laughs> I am not above saying that that's pretty cool. If you don't know what Enemy Mine is, and I realize there's a lot of maybe younger listeners mm-hmm. who didn't grow up with this movie because it was briefly big in the 80s and then started to fade, just didn't get talked about a lot. Uh, it is a sci-fi movie starring Dennis Quaid and Lou Gossett Jr. It's... Uh, Dennis Quaid plays a human fighter pilot in space who crashes on an on a on an alien planet, the uninhabited alien, uninhabited alien, alien planet, uh, with uh, the alien species he's at war with mm-hmm. called the Drac, uh, and uh, Luke Gossett Jr. plays this like reptilian creature, and they have to get over their mutual hatred and learn to live together, and they end up well, forming an incredibly close bond. They don't speak each other's language. Yeah. They have to learn how to survive. Uh, there's a the, 
hostilities on this planet, and it ultimately takes place over the the span of a very long period of time. Yeah, we're talking like like like, like a many, decade. many years. Yeah, 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 and it's it's really good. It's a really good movie. It's really good. It's been a while since I've seen it. In it my everyone life. in it like gives a great a performance. The production design it's like kind of cheap, but like they knew what to spend the money on, and it's cool. The enemy mind bit is like all of the third act. Like that's why it's called enemy mind. Mostly it's not about an enemy mind. But um, anyway, it's it's a really really good movie, and it of course is based off of um, I think it's a was it a John Borman movie, Hell in the Pacific, with uh, oh. Lee Marvin and I think it was Tashira Mifune, right? That, that that was Hell in the Pacific. I don't know if that's a John Borman. Um, anyway, um, anyway, it, there's like a long tradition of this, and mm. um, it's even something that uh, I feel uh, Kong Skull Island kind of played with as well, yeah. without doing quite so clear a job of it yes it was john borman okay uh on the pacific 1968 also a great movie um but uh yeah so monster hunter is briefly kind of focused and doing a good job and seeing him fight the monster using just stuff that they slap together really it's all really really cool and then they have to run into ron perlman and then there's another (laughs) of course there's ron perlman of course he is and ron perlman may be wearing the most embarrassing thing i've ever seen ron perlman wear in a movie and that's saying i was about to say said some really embarrassing costumes he doesn't have a lot of shame um and of course the monsters end up coming to our planet and everything like that and frankly it loses steam real fast but there's some cool monsters it's not a complete wash but it plays like the script the underdeveloped script you have for a sci-fi channel original movie complete with the we don't have any good locations so let's set it all in the desert with one jeep uh but we're gonna throw way too much money at it so all the monsters actually look amazing i guess they knew where to spend the money though. and yeah. you know what there's an undeniable charm to that i will also say i think the uh uh the techno musical score uh, and I actually forgot to check who did that. So let me, uh, like BT or something. Uh, let's see what we got here. Paul Haslinger. Okay. Uh, who I'm unfamiliar with. I'm curious if he's done anything else that I, that I, that I dig. Uh, he, oh, he worked, he worked on uh, halt and catch fire. Oh, I haven't um, seen halt and catch fire. Critically acclaimed TV series. He worked on fear of the walking dead. A couple of TV big, guy, a lot of TV guy. He's worked with Paul, uh, Douglas Anderson before he did three musketeers. Um, yeah. but, um, yeah, really good, really good score. Um, yeah, it's it ended up it went from being just laughable and bad to pretty good to laughable and bad, and ultimately just hovered around. It's a B movie, and I can't be too mad at it. Like it's, <laughs> I I had an okay time, but I can't pretend it's a good movie. So I'm mm-hmm. I'm actually torn with what I'm going to rate this at the end of the episode: a C or a C minus. It's definitely not a C plus. Right. Anyway, uh, um, moving on. Let's yeah, talk, tell me yeah. about Fatal. Yeah, you know what else is schlock? Okay. <laughs> well, here's the problem with Fatal. It's not schlock enough. Oh. Uh, Fatal is uh, a movie about uh, Michael Ely. He plays... Uh, like I love his, Michael Ely. Michael Ely is wonderful. Uh, and I think Michael Ely is one of those actors who's always equal to like low material. He's been in a lot of schlocky movies and he knows how to play it broad. Uh, and in this one, he plays a sports agent... His company is on the upswing, but his marriage is on the downswing. He's sort of alienated from his wife. They're really distant. Uh, He goes to Las Vegas to attend a friend's bachelor party, and his friend reaches over to his hand, pulls off his wedding ring for him, and says, we're in Vegas, you're going to have an affair. And he's like, but I, 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 and he turns around and who should be at the bar but Hilary Swank. Okay. Who is drinking and giving this movie way more attention than it deserves. She's actually looking for like humanity and nuance in this role that I think requires a little bit more like broad nastiness. Mm, Maybe. 
Which is um, weird because she was really broad and nasty in The Hunt, so she's got it in her. I guess, I don't know how she was directed, but yeah. here she's, she's just doing her thing. Okay. Uh, they go back up to her, her hotel room, and yes, indeed, they do have sex. Uh, good for, for them. And good for them. Yeah. They're, they're in control I, of their own I guess, destiny. I guess uh, bad for the relationship. Well, yeah, but, yeah. but you know, the, the, these, these are adults. They make an adult decision. And uh, the first sign <laughs> of things... I want to see rated R for adult decisions. It's adult decisions. <laughs> First sign that something might be a little off is that she has locked his cell phone in the hotel safe and she won't let it go until he has sex again. Uh, he goes uh, goes back home uh, in a fit of guilt, decides to treat his wife to a romantic dinner. Uh, and uh, shortly after the romantic dinner, they experience a home invasion and a guy breaks in and starts beating Michael Ely up. They call the cops. The cops come in and who's in charge of the investigation but Hillary Swank. She's the cop. Oh. Yeah. Well, that's now, a twist. That's a, it's a twist. Yeah, I'll give you that. And that's, that's I actually, seen that one before. It's sort of an interesting twist. And indeed, as the film uh, progresses, we get to learn that uh, Michael Ely is a little bit on the outs, how there's this a lot of simmering tension between he and some work associates. And we also get to see Hilary Swank's personal life. She's actually gone through a rather messy divorce and she's a recovering alcoholic and she's trying to reattain custody of her child. And at the same time, she's investigating this home invasion of this man she had an affair with and they're both trying to keep it secret. And it looks for a few moments like this is going to be a rather complex drama about you know, the things adults need to do to survive in dire circumstances. Mm-hmm. A mature and, yeah. adult thriller, yeah. which uh, we don't have a lot of nowadays. But at the same time, this was written to be a Fatal Attraction knockoff. So yeah. there's no, it doesn't get as crazy as Fatal Attraction, unfortunately. If it had, it could have been like a fun schlocky movie. But because Hilary Swank is playing it so close to the chest and because the big twists aren't big enough it ends up just being this really disappointing completely lackluster infidelity revenge drama is where it... people end up getting killed and there are some other twists that aren't all that exciting they're not like big reveals it's like if you're gonna start piling twists on go full to palma with it yeah go know, nuts have, like it, you know. yeah, have fun like i feel like there's a lot of um again the the adult thriller not necessarily a sexual thriller, but there's a lot of them. But a th- a thriller for adults about adult problems and adult anxieties, we just don't get a lot of them anymore. Especially not in like yeah, the Hollywood yeah. system. They might be make for like TV sometimes, but like it's been a bit. And I was looking this up actually, and it turns out a fair amount of the more recent ones have all been written by the guy who wrote Fatal. His name is David Lowry, <laughs> uh, and he wrote more recently uh, The Intruder, also with Michael Ealy. He wrote Obsessed with Idris Elba and Beyonce. Which uh, was kind of disappointing because it needed sex. Yeah, it's weird. That's one where there isn't, in the case of Fatal, which I didn't see, mm. but you, de- as you described is, it. There actually is an There's an initial infidelity. sin. Yeah. There's an initial sin. And oftentimes these kinds of thrillers are about an, an adult who makes a selfish or poor or immoral choice that perhaps the audience can sympathize with. Like, I can understand how you well, would I, do that. I recognize that, that why you're doing this, but I also recognize this is an incredibly bad decision. Yeah. And oftentimes in these films, that yeah. bad decision is then paid back a million times over. Like Fatal Attraction. Mm. Michael Douglas was hardly the first person to cheat on their spouse, but it went really, really, really bad. So there you mm. go. Or and So um, 
But yeah, this guy also did Lakeview Terrace, which I didn't see. I heard that one was good. Oh, though. that was the Neil Abute film, like, yeah. Lakeview Terrace, and that was uh, yeah. rife with uh, racial iconography. It's called Lakeview yeah. Terrace, yeah, which is where Rodney King was beaten, yeah. Um, and so it's about Samuel L. Jackson as a corrupt a, cop, as a corrupt cop, and, yeah. and uh, there, there actually is a, a twinge of like racial politics in Fatal because it is about Michael Ely, a black man mm-hmm. who's having an affair with a white cop, and what that means to uh, he, he and his black friends. Yeah, there's a power and, dynamic. And there, yeah. they mention it a couple times without ever asking any serious questions That's or delving into it. There's so, it. Many, so much possibility. It's like, well, there, yeah. you brought it up. Can you like go down that path at least mm-hmm. a few more steps before turning At least around? address it. Like, at least yeah. give someone like a good speech mm-hmm. or something. You know, there's a lot to be done. Yeah, and I'm, again, looking at this, he also did uh, Money Train, which is a surprisingly good... Kind oh, of complex thriller, actually, which is actually like a lot of like unexpected elements to it. Money Train. With uh, Woody Harrelson and Wesley, Wesley Snipes. Snipes? Okay. It's actually better than you might think, because um, it's actually like... It's like it's from kind the of, 90s. That was yeah, a while back. It's, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a buddy cop comedy, kind of, but it's also like a serious drama about their friendship and how it keeps getting pushed to the breaking point because Woody Harrelson is immature. Mm. It's also a heist movie and a serial killer movie. It's kind of all things, and it kind of works. He also... <laughs> He also uh, co-wrote Star Trek V, but who can, who's counting? Look, um, Star, <laughs> look Star Trek V. <laughs> There's so so many reasons why that film turned out the way it did. And mo- most most of them had to do with budget. That's, that's true. Um, so is Fatal at the end of the day? It sounds like it's a little disappointing. It, is there entertainment value to it? Uh, no, there's not. Mm. Uh, like it, it, it starts. It starts flirting at some moments uh, with being something actually interesting. Okay, it's like okay, I'm get, getting into this like steamy drama to see like schlock, like boy next door kind of schlock. Uh, but I'm not getting that. In fact, I'm getting something that's an interesting drama. Oh no, you're gonna try to go the schlock route again, but you're gonna do it badly. So yeah, at the end of the day, it's just a big, big old mess. Just, That's a shame. Yeah. Well, let's let's end on a positive note. Uh, at least the new releases. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's talk about uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, mm-hmm. which is the final film performance that I'm aware of, anyway, of Chadwick Boseman, who of course died tragically earlier this year at way too young mm-hmm. an age. Um, and it is uh, the latest adaptation of an August Wilson play. Also stars Viola Davis and uh, Glenn Turman and a bunch of other great actors. And this movie's great. Uh, it slaps, as the kids say. It, this, this movie is really, this movie is it's, exceptionally good. You know, uh, it's based on an August Wilson play, and it feels like a play. And mm-hmm. I want to say right out that it's not a film's job to, ish- that when it, adapting a mm. theater play to not feel like a theater play. Yeah. In fact, I think it's okay if it feel like a theater play. And uh, a lot of this film takes place in the basement room of a recording studio yeah. where uh, musicians have gathered to talk about life and prepare for a recording session. I will say this about uh, when you're watching a movie based on a play and it feels like a play. Mm. A, that's not a problem. And sometimes and we really need to open our eyes to the idea that there are different kinds of uh, dialogue, acting styles, etc. that are perfectly valid and it's all about tuning into their wavelength and getting into it. Mm. Um, for me, the only problem that I have, and I used to be, I used to be less mature about this, um, but the only problem I have when you're adapting a play into a movie is when it feels like the movie is trying not to be a movie. Like mm. when there are elements of the play that are referred to that could be shown and 
there's no reason not to because you're in a movie, not because it's like it's supposed to be a mystery or something, but like literally there's no reason not to show this. Mm. In a movie, you show that, and then that feels like you're not hiding your moviness. And I think Ma Rainey's Black Bottom does that. Okay. There, it's mostly right here. There are a few bits elsewhere, and it leaves when it needs to. But this is a story about a moment in a place. And, and that's and, all we need is that moment in that place. Well, and, and occasionally they walk outside for a minute. And conversation and character. Exactly. It's, yeah. What, what What is happening outside? It doesn't matter what's happening. What's happening is yeah. the way these... Uh, these people are communicating. Uh, and it's a great place to have yeah, a play the, uh, like that because it's, it's a creative studio yeah. full of te- uh, tension and pressure yeah. and time. It takes time to do these sorts of things. So everyone mm-hmm. has time to express themselves. Yeah. It's great. Um, Ma Rainey is a real person. Yep. She was uh, queen of the blues. Uh, she, uh, Th- there's a photo montage at the end where you get to see pictures of her. Uh, and black bottom was a song of hers. And, uh, the musicians we meet, I think, are all fictional, like fictionalized versions of of musicians she worked with. And uh, Chadwick Boseman plays Levy. He's the uh, trumpeter, and he is cocky and confident mm-hmm. and is feels he's above this. Well, he feels like he's keyed into yeah. a new sound. Ma yeah. Rainey's been doing this for a while, and she's a legend, but there's always a need for newer hipper music to drive the industry forward and it seems like levy is the kind of like cool young thing who's got like who knows what the kids like now and he's he believes in that and it's made him kind of an asshole yeah yeah he he buys fancy shoes right at the beginning of the movie these nice yellow like two weeks of pay spent on these shoes and uh he he's bought them in a fit of confidence i'm gonna be the next big thing i'm gonna talk to this record producer and i'm just gonna become a millionaire immediately and uh, that talented yeah and he won't he won't even rehearse with the older musicians because he's he's just it's what what's the use i'm gonna knock it out of the park yeah uh the other musicians are played by uh coleman domingo Uh, he's the guitarist uh glenn turman who's excellent he's the pianist so good and uh michael potts who uh, is the bass player Mm -hmm. and a lot of what they talk about is music Mm -hmm. life how much you paid on the shoes poverty tragedies in their past Mm -hmm. uh levy has a of horrendous, uh, horrendous. Hor- horrendous experience in his youth that he recounts very openly with these people about mm-hmm. how this is a, a, like informed a lot of who he was because he went through this horrendous traumatic experience. Yep. Uh, and he experienced a lot of racial violence and they are trying to suss out the meaning of the music and how they're trying to progress in this uh, world that is actually largely oppressing them. Yeah, and even even the music world where they might be legends, mm. they might be some of the best musicians in the world, mm. uh, but it's still an industry run by white people, and the white people, and we see them, the producers, the mm. the managers, and they're trying to run around trying to get this record made, and you realize that a lot of the behavior that they're dealing with that they consider. Uh, you know, they the, use the, all these creative types. Yeah, they're they, just they're just being divas. They, they use the "you" word, which I don't even want to say out loud anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, that that's uh, it, it's just so racially charged. They're extremely racially yeah. charged. Yeah. Um, um, they, they they say that out loud, and yeah. Uh, and so, they, but we learned that like you know that <laughs> there is so much tension, even in industry where theoretically everyone's working together for the same end to hmm. make records, to make a profit, to make good music. Um, 
but everyone is fighting tooth and nail for all the leverage they can get yeah. for control of their music, control of their careers, control over how much money they make and, um, and their own no, dignity. Uh, no more so than Ma Rainey herself. Exactly. Uh, played by Viola Davis. Excellent. She's in this great. movie. I mean, she, she's great, she's, but she's particularly great in this movie. She, she's uh, very transformative in this movie. And I feel yeah, like she's, she, she's playing a different character than she often gets. To play. Yeah. They, they put her in like this, this makeup and they like, they put makeup on her teeth and, uh-huh. and, and, and she's she carries playing, herself totally differently. Yeah, than most I, of the time you get to see Viola. Davis. Yeah, I think, really I think they, they put like a, they put her in a, a body changing suit and, um, she is playing one of those movie characters that is just so broad and huge that, it takes you a moment to realize, wait a minute, she's just playing a huge, broad human being. Yeah. She's not, this she's isn't not, a caricature. This isn't, yeah. yeah, this is just, and, and again, we mm. all know people who are larger than life. Yeah. You've met them. And, they and, exist. They're fascinating. The, she She's sarcastic. She's hilarious. Uh, the scene where she demands a bottle of Coca-Cola is yeah. uh, like hilarious and poetic all at once. Mm-hmm. She realizes, okay, I'm here to sing the song. You need me get me a bottle of Coke. And that sounds like she's being a bit of a diva, but she also has an excellent point. I work really, really hard. I'm not making as much money as those guys. They can afford to get me a Coke. Yeah. And it's so hot in here. She, she's, I, I want a goddamn Coke. So she's not just sort of and being a diva. She's and it's actually not hard asserting to, uh, uh, the power she has. And it's not hard to get. There's literally a deli across the street. Mm. So literally the time it takes for them to fight her and say, you don't need a Coke is time that would have been better spent just getting a Coke. And the mm. fact that she has to fight for it is kind of proof positive of everything the characters say. Yeah. Mm. It's so smartly observed and so thoughtful and insightful mm. and beautifully photographed. Like it plays yeah. like a dream. The there's, music's there's, really great. Yeah, all these, like yeah. some supporting characters drifting out. Uh, Ma Rainey has what appears to be a young girlfriend. Oh yeah. Uh, very much so. Who also is, you know, very flirtatious with Levy. So there's a, a little, there's a lot of sexual tension going on there. Uh, and it all uh, culminates in a rather shocking act, which I'm not going to describe just yeah. because you should discover Th- There's it. real drama. It's not just mm. people talking about music. Mm. It, not that that wouldn't uh, be enough, and, but it does escalate. And all of this is excellent. And it all just has the most wonderful button at oh, the end. Oh God, the button. <laughs> the button is genius. Uh, it, it's... Mm. And, and, and ah, I, I wish I could talk about it because I do want you to see it. It's but, such uh, a good bit. It's such a good mm. bit. And 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 the the elephant in the room is Chadwick Boseman, who of course again this is his last performance. And you know it's easy to sort of you know it, it it's going to carry an, an additional weight. You can you can make it a little mythic. You can right? because but it, here's he, even... he plays such a, a a damaged character yeah. who is so full of wrath and energy. Yeah. Uh, that yeah, it, it's tempting to say this is him putting the last of his life into this role. And who can say mm-hmm. how much of any of that is true? You know, again, actors tend mm-hmm. to be very uh, aware of their own feelings, and maybe he used some of that for the performance. Mm-hmm. Who's to say? What I can say is that it is incredibly rare for a performer of any age or era to have their last performance be one of their great performances. Mm-hmm. And especially, like, you look at people like James Dean, who only have, like, three movies. Mm-hmm. And they're all varying degrees of great. But Jack Bowes made a lot of movies. They weren't all good movies. No, he was in Gods of Egypt. Gods of Egypt is a very, <laughs> it's a very silly film. Um, so there's not, there was no guarantee that he was going to, like, his last film would be 
are truly exceptional. Hmm. Not only just Chazik Bozeman performance, but a movie to support it. And this is such a beautiful grace note. Yeah. yeah. It is an incredible character. He plays it incredibly. He's he's looking rather gaunt. Uh, that's kind of inescapable. But he never seems like he's lacking energy. He's putting no, and, all the and, effort into it. And in fact, it. that's appropriate for the character. This is the yeah. 1920s. Uh, and I get, he's spending his money on shoes, not food. You well, know? and, and yeah. also that was that was sort of just a, a, the fashion at the time, the kind of slimmed down look. Yeah. So yeah, that was just visually appropriate. Yeah, but anyway, this this is a truly exceptional performance, and a film of, full of truly exceptional performances. Mm. Uh, Glenn Turman is a character actor who's been around <laughs> as long as I can remember. I first saw him in Gremlins. <laughs> um, and uh, in fact, I actually found out and this is something really interesting. Um, he was allegedly George Lucas's first pick to play Han Solo. Oh, a great Han Solo! Yeah, he was thinking Glenn Turman for Han Solo, but according to Glenn Turman, who told this story, uh, he found out that there was some concern over having uh, a black man in a romantic relationship with a white woman in a big sci-fi movie. Then audiences would have balked, and that sucks, and that's bullshit. Grumble vomit. And grumble. I love Harrison Ford, but I would kill to see the Glenn Turman version yeah, yeah. because that would be awesome too. And boy, would that have been exciting! But in any case, he's a fantastic actor. He's a fantastic performance here. Everyone is good in this movie. Um, and again, it does feel like a play. It has that, which pre- is fine, which is totally yeah. fine. But I just want to prepare you because I think that's our job hmm. is to tell you what you're in for so that you're ready for it and you're able to accept the positive qualities of a thing just because you're not going to be distracted by it not being what you expected. It's going to feel like a play. It's going to have a lot of really broad uh, uh, illustrative dialogue. These These are people who love to talk. Let them talk, listen, listen to their music, watch them move. They're... It's incredible. Let them have the big conversations. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I appreciate the theatricality. I, I'm glad that the director was able to leave all of it. The director, uh, I think this is his first feature film. Uh, George uh, was, C. Wolf. But he's he's a Tony Award winning uh, theater director who did Angels in America and a few he, other big Broadway he, productions. No, he did, a, he did a few other movies. He did the TV movie oh, did, Lackawanna Blues. Um, uh, he oh, okay. did the movie Nights in Rodanthe with oh, well, Diane I, Lane and Richard I, Gere. I apologize. But these are, the, you know, although these were reasonably well-respected mm-hmm. movies, they're not like huge movies that made him a household. Oh, he worked with Hilary Swank, too. <laughs> uh, so, like, these are not like household name movies where, like, you're everyone, yeah. oh, everyone knows George Wolfe. Like, mm-hmm. No, these, but this might put him on the map more. Mm-hmm. But I, I appreciate that he kept it theatrical and he lets the, the theater-like conversations just play out in this yeah. very natural sort of way. Uh, yeah, I really, really loved it. I really loved uh, almost everything in this movie. It's there's, really, there's really not, excellent not a lot It's one of the better about. films I've seen in a bit. Yeah. Um, sorry. Uh, this was part of an announced 10-picture deal between uh, HBO and Denzel Washington, of which uh, Fences was also a part. Yeah. And I really hope that the 10-picture deal is just August Wilson adaptation. I think it's, I think that's the plan. Wouldn't that be wonderful? No, I think that's literally the okay, plan. Okay, well, keep on. Because, yeah. uh, I like I like this better than Fences. Fences oh, is I, a good movie. I love Fences. Fences, Fences is a good movie. I got nothing yeah. against Fences, really. I just think this mm. one is so much... It, it's got an energy to it. It crackles. Mm. I, I love it. Yeah, August Wilson yeah. is an incredibly important playwright yeah. uh, who's done uh, all, all kinds of just 
wonderful, wonderful works. I, I got to study his work when I was in college. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, if, if we get a 10 film cycle over the course of the next decade of a bunch of August Wilson plays. I would, couldn't be. What a treat. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, uh, okay. So it's time to review some movies on the critically acclaimed scale. Once mm-hmm. again, our critically acclaimed scale goes from C minus to C plus. Most movies are a C. A C. You've been to school. A C is average. C minus is below average. That's everything from, we just don't recommend it to the worst thing ever made. And then C plus is above average which is we recommend it genuinely or possibly it's the greatest thing ever or somewhere in between. And uh, we, we like to work backwards. So uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is a big giant C+. It is a definitely C+. Excellent motion p- picture. Pretty dang good movie, yeah. I'd say. I, I, I love it to pieces. Uh, Fatal. Fatal is a C-. That's too bad. It's just the big, big, not, not schlocky enough to be schlock and not smart enough to be smart. Uh, Monster Hunter. I'm so fucking torn. Because it's not... <laughs> Follow your heart. It's not good. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I'm ever going to watch it again, but I also didn't hate watching it. I'm going to give this a very low C. Okay. Because I feel like the, the there's a lot of sloppy, dare I say, even lazy writing here. But we're here for the monster stuff, and the monster stuff itself is pretty cool. So it could have been better. It could have actually been a good movie. Instead, it's just a lazy B movie that does deliver the monster shit I wanted. Uh-huh. So I can, I can't really mark it down too far, but this isn't top tier Paul W.S. Anderson. <laughs> if such a thing <laughs> is a thing. That's saying something. It is. It is indeed. What, what is top tier Paul, Paul W.S. Anderson? Um, but some would argue Event Horizon. I, yeah. I wouldn't, but some would, yeah. um, I would. Did, did you say, see soldier? That soldier's was pretty good. Actually. Pretty good I, I like soldier. Soldier's fine. Mortal Kombat is more efficient than good. <laughs> a lot of people love Mortal Kombat, but it just kind of got out of the video game's way. Mm. You know, it's it's it did the fighting tournament. The fights mostly good. Uh, this the Scorpion Johnny Cage fight is actually really good. That's um, where they they like fall into a bamboo dimension. They fall into hell dimension. Basically, yeah. is the idea. But like, yeah, that's actually like a solidly choreographed and filmed fight sequence, mm. which is hard to find in American yeah. cinema, especially and, in the and 90s. And the CGI, and, chef's kiss. Right? Um, but no, I actually don't think it's it's that good. I think his, uh, uh, I think Pompeii is a delight, but I think it actually boils down to Resident Evil 5, I think is the, is the absolute... <laughs> so resurrection? The apo- yes. Apocalypse, extinction. Yeah, afterlife. Afterlife, and resurrection. Then, uh, resurrection, and then the last one. Which was called the final chapter. The final chapter, yeah. So I think it's resurrection. Um, yeah, it's intensely stupid, but it not, it, it la- does not lack for imagination, <laughs> and I have a very good time watching it. So for me, that's that is pièce de résistance. Which was the one that had like the dog monsters on like the gleaming white ship that was offshore. That was I think it was the fourth one. That was Afterlife. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that that's the that's the funnest slash stupidest four, one. Four and five are are are, are good double feature. <laughs> okay, they're they're not good movies, but they're a good double feature, and they tell you what mm-hmm. Baldwin Anderson is all about. I think. Um, and then oh, and then we we, we mm-hmm. got sidetracked. Uh, and then Education is a giant also, C plus. Also C plus. Yeah. Damn good movie. That this one, I mean, the the whole small acts, and you know, to judge now that we've seen them all, to judge the whole small acts cycle, that's also a C plus. Uh, just because it, this is one of those really important uh, film projects yeah. that we're going to be talking about for years. This is and, this uh, was ambitious and it pu- got pulled off, mm. which is 
hard to do, especially yeah, five films. And I feel really lucky that we were able to get all of these five movies in such a concentrated span of time. Oh my god, what a, what a, yeah. what a, I'm sorry, just I can't get over it. What a gift. Mm-hmm. To have five incredible, to varying degrees perhaps, but five incredible movies, these enlightening, empathetic, beautifully crafted motion pictures mm. from a filmmaker with a vision and an idea behind all of this and stuff, understanding yeah. and genuine talent. Like, I, I liked Steve McQueen's movies before this, but I'm, I'm officially on board with anything he does now. Like, I, I thought he was very talented, but this, I think, is just holy shit good. Um, yeah, we're very, very lucky. And if you again, if you haven't seen him yet, d- just now's your time. Just do it. <laughs> do it. It, it's, do it. It's like, it takes, so I think someone did the count. Like, it, it, all the Small Axe movies together, shorter than O.J. Simpson made in America. Yeah, that's yeah, that's yeah, true. People watch that, and it's a great documentary. So, like, mm-hmm. if you can make the time for that, make the time for Small Axe. It's totally worth it. All right, moving on. Uh, over on the Patreon uh, page, we have a poll every week. Again, we're going to take a couple weeks off at the end of December for the holiday and to catch up on some things. But we have a poll every week for the critically acclaimed streaming club, where we pick a streaming service and we explore one movie on that service that either Whitney or myself have never mm-hmm. seen, and uh, we pick two films. And uh, we give them to our patrons, and they vote. And this week, uh, it was... It was Tubi. It was Tubi, that's right. Was mm. it Tubi? It was Tubi. That's how I watched it. <laughs> I don't think it was supposed to be Tubi. I think it was supposed to be Hulu. Oh, was it? I think it was supposed to be Hulu. Oh, I think it was Hulu. I think it's, but it was available on Tubi. I watched it on Tubi. <laughs> Sometimes these movies are available on more than one service. In any case... Uh, the movie that we that we uh, that was selected was Alfred Hitchcock's Dial M for Murder, which is basically the last major Alfred Hitchcock movie I had never seen. Like some oh, of his yeah. some were, of his early were British you stuff. Saving it, or it just never crossed your path. I, I think I actually <coughs> bless you. Excuse I me. think I had thought I'd seen it, but I think it was confusing it with something else, like Stage yeah. Fright or something. So, in any case. Um, it's a it's a prominent work. It's from 1954. It stars uh, Ray Milland and Grace Kelly and Robert Cummings, and um, it's uh, it's also Alfred Hitchcock's only 3D film. Wait, Not that you'd I, really I, know it. I didn't see it in 3D, and most of the film takes place in a single room. Yeah, like there's no real reason for this to be 3D, and I didn't sense any like playful 3D tricks which yeah. you would think assume Hitchcock would have been all over yeah, Hitchcock would shove things out of the camera Alfred Hitchcock for people who might need a, a, a refresher course or uh, maybe you, you haven't gotten into him yet fair enough uh, Alfred Hitchcock is a British filmmaker who worked from the silent era into the 1970s incredibly prolific mm-hmm. uh, and uh, he got to start writing title cards in silent movies and then gradually worked his way up until he was allowed to direct. And he started directing. His early career is actually pretty varied. And he did like he did like a biopic of like classical musicians and a couple other things that just people don't talk about very much. Um, but he made a name for himself directing thrillers. And indeed, over the course of his career, he would go on to essentially... I, I hesitate to say something like perfect, but refine what we know of as a cinematic thriller and would experiment with techniques in suspense and uh, storytelling trickery 
successfully throughout his entire career. Uh, he directed a ton of important and influential movies. Like, seriously, a shocking number <laughs> of legitimately significant, yeah, You, if you care about cinema, you should try to make a point to see it. And I'm going to give you the shortest version of that list that I can right now. Uh, the Lodger, a story of the London Fog, silent movie about Jack the Ripper. Uh, Murder, uh, The Man Who Knew Too Much, the 1930s version. The 39 Steps, uh, which was basically cracked open the wrong man thriller as we know it today. The Lady Vanishes, Rebecca, One Best Picture. Uh, Suspicion, Saboteur, Shadow of a Doubt, Lifeboat, Spellbound, <laughs> Notorious, Rope. I am. These are all important. I'm not. I'm not just listing everything he's ever done. All right. Strangers on a Train, Rear Window, To Catch a Thief, The Trouble with Harry, The Other, The Man Who Knew Too Much. He remade his own movie. Vertigo, North by Northwest, Psycho, The Birds, Frenzy, Family Plot. Every single one of those films is worth studying. Um. Vert and probably others too, but that's that's the shortest list I can give you. And Vertigo, uh, ten years ago, was listed as the best movie of all time uh, uh, in the yes. Sight and Sound poll uh, put out by uh, Sight and Sound, which I personally uh, disagree with, but I understand what people see in it. No, it, it had surpassed Citizen Kane. Uh, mm -hmm. This is not a Hitchcock I'd seen. I'm not as storied in Hitchcock as you are. I know okay. you're a big Hitchcock fan, uh, yeah. but I've seen a lot of his work, and yeah, this was one that has escaped my attention. And uh, this one, uh, what Hitchcock is, has been really savvy about doing uh, is, in many of his thrillers, many of his suspense movies, is getting you to sympathize with the bad guys. Mm -hmm. uh, Rope did this. Psycho famously did mm -hmm. this. Uh, there's a, a really famous scene in Psycho, uh, because this is the moment of realization when you realize what he's done to you. Yeah, It's when... Uh, after the big twist happens in that movie, which I'm still trying to <laughs> well, treat gingerly. What well, couple uh, of twists in that movie? Actually, but yeah. uh, the uh, one of these characters now finds himself in a position where he has to dispose of a dead body, and he puts it in the trunk of a car and pushes it into a swamp, hoping it'll sink below the water and vanish. Yeah, and again, at and this point, he's clearly not the good guy. He's, yeah, he's not the good guy. But now we're following him, and we get to see him cleaning up a murder scene. And there's a moment where he's pushing the, the car into the sump and it starts to sink and he looks kind of satisfied. Ah, job well done. And then it stops sinking. The car is sticking up and he panics and you panic too. Mm -hmm. Oh you, no, he won't get away oh, with oh this no, horrible he, murder. <laughs> he won't get away with covering up this murder. <laughs> Wait a minute. What did you do to me, Hitchcock? And yeah. I, th I think he's really uh, canny about shifting the audience's loyalty to the bad guy. And I feel that way about Dial M for Murder. Yeah. There there's a, was an extended period in this movie when I wanted him to get away with it. Because he's clever. That's he's, the thing. Yeah. The idea is that the killer is clever, and he's so clever that you kind of want to see the plan pay off because it seems like a good plan. There's a there's Alfred Hitchcock by the way, and let's the elephant in the room. Alfred Hitchcock, notorious creep. He was a creep. But he's dead now, and watching his movies won't contribute to mm. his livelihood career or any sort of, you know, legal defense against people suing him, which they probably should have. Mm. Um, he was cremated, his ashes were scattered in yeah. the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, it's that's so 
we're going to talk about his films because the films themselves are good. But if you want to put an asterisk next to his name because he's a creep, fine. Agreed. No one's arguing it. But he had an indelible stamp on film history. And if you remove him and his movies, there's a giant cavity where nothing makes sense. Because where did all this stuff come from? Hitchcock said his favorite film of his own was a film called Shadow of a Doubt. And I actually think it's one of his very best films. Have you ever seen this one with Teresa Wright and Joseph Cotton? I haven't seen Shadow of a Doubt. Amazing. Amazing movie. Uh, Teresa Wright uh, plays a, a teenage girl who... Uh, is absolutely the world's biggest super fan of her uncle, played by Joseph Cotton. Joseph Cotton is a man of the world. He goes out and travels, and every once in a while he comes home. Everyone fawns all over him for a bit, and he hugs his favorite niece, and he gives her presents, and he leaves. Except this time, he gives her a present, which his niece figures out pretty quickly might mean that he's a murderer because he got it from someone who has been murdered. <laughs> and she starts realizing that her husband, that her husband, that her uh, uncle might be a bluebeard who marries people, kills them, takes their money. And now she doesn't know what to do with that information and no one's going to believe her. Really scary and creepy stuff. But there's actually side characters in this movie that I think are really key to understanding Hitchcock's career. Shadow of a Doubt? Or Shadow of a Doubt. Darren? There's side characters in Shadow of a Doubt. There's uh, um, Teresa Wright's uh, father and his best friend. And every single night, they meet for dinner, and then they amuse themselves in the parlor trying to concoct the perfect murder. They have no intention of doing it. They just want to... It's an intellectual exercise. They just want to get mm. it right. You know, they're, they're amused by the concept of murder and trying to get away with it and proving your superiority and your intelligence. And this is a theme that runs throughout a lot of Hitchcock's movies mm. for people who are inclined towards crime because they're amoral. Maybe they're sociopaths. Maybe they have a decent motive. Or they're just interested in the dark. Exactly. Mm. And so they're approaching these immoral acts from the perspective of a filmmaker, a storyteller Hmm. trying to see what's the cleverest thing I can do. And in the best of these stories, the thing they come up with is so clever that you want to see how it pans out. You respect (laughs) their intelligence. Hmm. And I think dial in for murder is one of those. Um, It's based on a play. It, it uh, takes place actually mostly in an apartment. Uh, So it's very confined. Um, but um, it's pretty cool. So it opens with uh, Ray Milland is married to Grace Kelly. Mm-hmm. Uh, their relationship is adequate but boring. And it turns out that she's deeply in love with an American. Ray Milland. Uh, or not. Uh, no, Ray Milland's uh, a husband. American uh, is uh, uh, the other uh, guy. Uh, uh, um, something sorry. Halliday. Um Hold on. <laughs> who, who is the, 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 the American boyfriend? I, it's I, not Ray Milland. I, I, um, always, I always think it's Dana Andrews. He looks so much like Dana Andrews that I Robert Cummings he, is the actor. Robert Cummings. There you yeah, go. Yeah, Mark Halliday. Yeah, there you go. Next uh, up, sorry. Uh, Robert Cummings, who looks like Dana Andrews to me, but what can you do? Um, she's in love with this guy, and she's planning to leave her husband for him. And we find out that she has been blackmailed. They sent letters, and someone mm. blackmailed her, re- threatening to reveal the letter. Mm-hmm. And uh, then they go off on, like, for the evening, you know, presumably in the Ray Milan doesn't know any better and he's just being made a fool of. Mm. And then Ray Milan watches them go, picks up a phone, calls a guy, says, I want to buy your car. 
come on over. I want to buy your car. I saw your ad in the paper. And the guy comes over, and Ray Milan says, hey, I want you to kill my wife. <laughs> and the guy's like, why, why, why would you think I'd, I would do such a thing? And Ray Milan lays it all out. And in an incredible speech, just explains why this guy has no other option but to kill Ray Milan's wife. This very <laughs> complex web of... Uh, slowly accumulated blackmail material. Yeah, and like you realize that over the course of the conversation, like there's a bit where he's talking about, yes, my wife has been cheating on me. I even have the letter right here, and he drops the letter, and uh, the the would-be killer picks it up so he can read it, and later on, Ray Milland is just like, yeah, and uh, and if you don't do it, people will think you're the blackmailer. Why would I think that? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Your fingerprints are on this letter. And it's so <laughs> elegant. It's so elegantly mm-hmm. laid out. It's a beautiful speech. I would kill to have this speech. Yeah. You know, on this on the stage. As an actor, yeah. Ooh, just chew it. <laughs> you know, it's like it's like filet mignon. It's like mm, it's so juicy and good. Um, so he lays it all out, and the murder seems pretty clever. Mm-hmm. It's gonna go, uh, he is going to take the American out for a night on the town. Grace Kelly is gonna spend the night at home, as she often does. She's gonna go to bed, he's gonna leave a key. Hidden by the front door. Guy's going to come in, hide behind a curtain. At exactly, I think, 11 o'clock, Ray Milan's going to call home. She's going to go pick up the phone, which will put her right in front of the guy. He's going to strangle her to death. Bada bing. Everyone's happy. (laughs) We all go home. He didn't count on Grace Kelly being a badass fighting the guy off and killing him <laughs> and, and that's great and i think we should leave the the story there i'll uh, leave it that's, there that's but sort like, of like the first big twist is yeah, what happens in the story yeah, but so like, grace it, kelly manages to to fight him off while he listens on the telephone oh, that's that's so the, that's the dilemma for murder part yeah so it's basically it's we've got the perfect plan and he lays it out in a perfect way and you think to yourself my god he's gonna get away with this and then you realize all the little things his plan didn't mm. account for, and you're just watching the perfect plan fall apart right in front of you. So for a while, you're on board and you want to see it unfold because there's a little sinister streak in all of us, isn't there? <laughs> but then after a while, you want to see it like collapse like a flan in a cupboard because he's evil and he deserves his comeuppance. Well, he, he's evil, he deserves this comeuppance. He hired a guy to murder his wife. Yeah, he's a bad human but being. But the, the murderer failed, so... She's still alive. She's the only one who's taken a life in this scenario. I know it's weird. I mean, she killed a guy in self-defense. Right. T- totally fair, but uh, you know things did not go according to plan. Things didn't go according to plan, and we're sort of <laughs> trying to figure out like how, he, like what he's culpable for in all of this scenario, and mm-hmm. what he needs to cover up. And there's a lot of little clever things about who gets the key to the apartment. He's passing things into mm-hmm. purses and from hand to hand. And yeah. Hitchcock's really good about like zooming in on him, like palming the key, so you can see him yeah. kind of stealing things I, and moving. I, I, Key detail, if you will. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Uh, Ray Miland is so great. Yeah. And that he actually kind of overshadows everybody else. Yeah, it's his movie. Like, you think Grace be... Kelly is a huge humongoid star. And she's got star power galore. She was, and, uh, she was in the uh, rear window right around the same time, and she steals scenes from Jimmy Stewart. But in this movie, she is such a victim of the mechanics of the plot that yeah. she doesn't get a chance to have, like, her character moment. Yeah. She's actually just sort of worn down and frazzled by everything. Yeah, she's... The, she's... the American Boyfriend character actually has a pretty interesting scene with Ray Land because 
the affair has been exposed. Yeah. Uh, and But they still have very open conversations about what they do now and how they're trying to actually yeah. be civil with one another. They're trying to be civil with one another and they're trying to look out because theoretically they both love the same woman. He doesn't realize uh, Ray Milan was trying to kill her. And uh, yeah, uh, uh, Robert Cummings plays a... Uh, a, a a writer of murder mysteries mm. and so he's been thinking this whole thing out and it's really interesting to see a scene between a guy trying to solve a murder and a guy who committed the murder knows the solution and is trying to throw him off him. Yeah. and they both of them are not sure how much the other one knows or what the other one is uh involved with or capable of and it's just sparring it's a it's a fencing match mm. uh and one of them doesn't know that the other guy has like removed the fob from the end of his pay and it's been <laughs> dipped in poison <laughs> hamlet style like he doesn't know mm. and there's a lot of suspense there and it's super super exciting um i love this this is an interesting movie because it's not as grossly cinematic as Hitchcock often likes to be. He mm. likes to do these big whirling dervish shots. And there are a few in here that might not even call attention to themselves. Like there's a shot uh, at the beginning of the movie or, or at one point in the movie where um, uh, Ray Milland is, and it's a rotary telephone, you know, it goes, mm. you drag it and then it slides back. And um, he puts his finger in to dial. And of course the, that's the letter corresponding to the number is M. Mm. Get it? Um, in order to do it, and I think it has something to do with the 3D technology, uh, they couldn't get close enough to a real phone without everything going out of focus. Yeah. So they had to build a giant phone and a giant finger <laughs> in order to get that shot. So there's a lot of little trickery that might not be obvious, mm. but is actually pretty difficult to do. I noticed some early compositing uh, as well to try to get uh, the right depth of field when they were mm. looking out the window and seeing the street outside. Um but um, yeah, oftentimes Hitchcock would do this kind of trickery cinematically, visually, and here he's letting the dialogue do most of the work, and yeah, that's uh, different. And it's interesting to see him play like this. And, it's you know. it's still effective. Do you suppose he was trying to uh, kind of give a middle finger to three D? Because my understanding it was not his. He didn't really want to do it. Yeah, so he is making it as visually undynamic as possible. <laughs> I would not put that sort of, yeah, just, just to he sort was... of be, be a dick about being forced to shoot in three D. I, I seriously <laughs> would not be surprised. <laughs> um. um because I've seen other Hitchcock movies, I see a lot of the things he's used to, a lot of mm-hmm. the sort of plot points and tropes. Uh, I appreciate sort of how he takes something that actually is a very intimate thing and that actually is a very simple plot and does stretch it into entire feature and gets a lot of tension out of these little tiny moments. There isn't a big chase outside. They barely go outside. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all takes, takes place in this little tiny space and all of the drama comes from will he or won't he like drop a thing or hide something mm-hmm. in just the right way. Uh, and when it comes down to uh, the police, the police uh, man who's investigating, the police investigator. Inspector uh, Hubbard, Inspector played by John Williams, no relation. Uh, who looks an awful lot like Alfred from the 1960s Batman TV series. 
it could mm. well, uh, Alan Napier. It looks a lot like Alan Napier. It could be right? brothers, maybe. <laughs> uh, how they're trying to uh, be very civil with one another. They're being very British with one another. Mm-hmm. This is a very English movie. Yeah, everyone's everyone's got to be really polite while they're accusing each other of murder. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. If you're if you're not polite, they might kick you out of the house. So you got to stay real polite. So that they, it would be rude to kick you out of the house. So you get to keep asking them questions. He even pulls the Columbo at one point. <laughs> yeah, he even yeah. just says, oh, there's just one more thing. And he asks for a little key piece of information. And he's a really fun... It, it's interesting because right, you know, right now the conversation around uh, the police mm. is focusing on the negative as well mm. it should. We need to be having this conversation and it's long overdue. Uh, but there is this tradition of the mild-mannered, smarter-than-you detective, <laughs> which I find absolutely charming. We, we encountered it in Green for Danger with Alistair oh, Sim. Oh, yeah, yeah, And we've got it here, where he's actually very unassuming, and Ray Milland quickly assumes that this is a guy he can just walk all over. Mm. And what he doesn't realize is that just because he's mild mannered doesn't mean he isn't he hasn't already beaten you thirty moves away in a chess game. He just doesn't let it show. He doesn't need the dramatic reveal. Yeah. He just needs to do his job. And it's a great character. A part of me thinks to myself, this is maybe the kind of reverent police hero that creates an unrealistic expectation of the moral authority and the overall uh, success ratio of the police. But that's not John Williams's fault. And I think he has a wonderful performance. Uh, It's again, this, this is battles of wits Mm. one after the other. And there's, there's tension, but uh, I get the feeling that this is a lot more playful very playful. Uh, this isn't like Rope, where there's this streak of darkness. The murder takes place right at the start of the movie. It's the mm. first shot. And then the corpse is in the scene the whole time, because yeah. nobody knows it, because it's in a box. Exactly. Yeah. So that, that's uh, that's grim. Even though this is about, you know, there's murders, and it's about a guy plotting to kill his wife, There there's a kind of impishness to this movie. It's that's all, why that's It's why almost I'm, like a comedy film. That's why I brought up the Shadow of the Doubt characters, because yeah. I feel like Hitchcock often seems to approach the murders in his stories. And again, some are more gruesome than others. And it seems like he approached psycho a little differently, for example, but even in psycho, there's a playfulness to the way that the story is presented. Mm. He's tricking you. I think that at the heart of Hitchcock's many thrillers and especially his murder stories, there is a naive, uh, uh, gamesmanship being played where mm. there's someone's very very intelligent but they're not really thinking out these things on an empathetic level oh no it's sad that they died they're thinking oh no what a shame it would be if they got caught okay how do we <laughs> how do we prevent ourselves from getting caught and like what's what's every eventuality you got to think out every single angle and then you think out every single angle and then you have to think about all the angles you didn't think about and I get the impression that this is the kind of conversation that Hitchcock would enjoy. There's a mental mm. exercise. And some of his movies play like those mental exercises. And few, if any, more so than Dial M for Murder. Because it's just all it's about. It's thinking out the angles, trying to get away with shit. And then other people trying to outthink you. And it's yeah. fun. It, it's fun and uh, it, it kind of playfully... Uh lures you into thinking like a killer 
Yeah. That that's the game Hitchcock is playing. Yeah, he's incriminating the it's, audience. Yeah, it's not yeah. just that he is getting you to sympathize with a killer; he's getting you to think like a killer. Yeah, what what would you do? Yeah, if, How would you solve if, this problem? So you've plotted your spouse's death, yes. and it didn't go quite so well. How would you slime your way out of it? Ah, how, see how clever he is. Would you be that clever? Exactly. And uh, I, I think that that's the ultimate plan of his. Yeah. Is to get you to think of yourself as a killer. He was a subversive filmmaker. Mm-hmm. I think even in his most mainstream stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I, this, this isn't like probably... I'll give it time because I did like it a lot, but I don't think this is likely to end up on like my list of like the ten best Hitchcock movies. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, but it's it's such a treat, and I'm really really glad I finally saw it. Um, so thank you everybody, thank you everybody on our Patreon uh, for voting for this one again. Uh, normally we this is where where we would announce the nominees for next week. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are taking a two week break from the polls so that we can spend a whole week catching up on movies that we missed throughout the year, like Tenet. Uh, and of course, we'll do some new releases too. Promising Young Woman, Wonder Woman, probably a couple others. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the new Pixar film. Oh, is that yeah. this week? It's Christmas Day. Yeah. Great. Okay, cool. So that too. Um, and uh, yeah, so we'll do review a whole bunch of new movies and slightly older movies from earlier this year mm-hmm. uh, next week. And then the week after that, we're going to do our picks for the best pictures of the year. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we'll go right back to it. Start review more new releases and go right back to the streaming club that we all love so dear. So thank you everybody for listening. Thank you everybody, uh, especially thank you everybody in our Patreon. Um, this show wouldn't exist without our Patreon, and you know it's a time of year to be thankful and appreciative and yeah. you know respect our families having and, having your ears and having your attention and having your support is really keeping us upright yeah and has throughout this entire years and, and always yeah so thank you very much for for listening to our our opinions and i'm very much looking forward to having like a week off so we can finally get some work done um because <laughs> we can we can we, we need to hunker down and we want to catch up on a few projects that we've been working on this whole time and mm. we have a lot of podcasts that are in the can that are going to come out in that time we're not taking just a, a pure vacation but we're going to reallocate some of our mental and uh, mm. uh time resources and uh yeah pick up the pace on a few things and switcheroo and it'll be fun uh so bob's your uncle podcast yes uh so okay thank you everybody for listening uh you can find us on twitter at critic acclaim i am at william bibiani i'm at whitney seibold uh Uh, could i say uh i recorded an episode of a podcast called tentpole trauma today oh that's uh, cool where uh, uh that's hosted by a fellow named sebastian and he had me on to talk about valerian and the city of a thousand planets yes the hosts of uh tentpole trauma recently did an episode of our uh, every once in a while podcast, uh, our, my dinner with my dinner with Andre, where we mm-hmm. ask other podcast hosts, uh, to talk about my dinner with Andre. Yeah. Uh, so you got to talk about Valerian. I can't wait to listen to that episode. That's really cool. Yeah. We, we talked about that movie for two dang hours. So uh, uh, it was a n- nice long episode. We got to go through with a fine tooth comb. Yeah. Uh, Valerian, the, the premise of that podcast, tentpole trauma is, uh, gigantic budget movies that rather notoriously bombed yeah they didn't do what they were supposed to do they were supposed to be temple the tent fell yeah that's that's great i can't wait to listen to that episode uh also you might have noticed at the beginning of this episode uh we had a commercial uh we don't (laughs) we don't we don't usually have those because we don't have sponsors but this one's special because whitney's involved in the project that's right tell people a little bit about this podcast that you're in uh, this is called From Beyond the Broadcast. This was put together by my friend uh, Chelsea Spirito. She uh, has acted in the plays that I wrote. 
she's a, a voice actress and this is now a project of hers it is a weird science fiction anthology series the premise is uh the host's car is struck by lightning and now can get radio broadcasts from other dimensions and that's what you hear on the show that's fun and uh, i get to play the host uh i get to play this half-mad filthy hobo named jam handy a character i invented myself for uh burlesque purposes and now it's leaking into other media that's so uh, so jam handy is now hosting from beyond the broadcast it's on episode two now it's on stitcher it's on apple podcasts it's another project i'm involved in so go ahead and check that out that's wonderful man um Okay, so uh, I guess that's it. Thank you, everybody, once again. Oh, you can always uh, email us letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. You want to talk about anything we discussed in this episode, anything else at all, really. We might read your letter on an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail, patreon.com slash criticallyacclaimednetwork. Get a bunch of exclusive stuff. I think that's it. Mm. Let's move on with our night, because it is currently 1.32 yeah. in the morning, and we are tired. We're so tired, yeah. Thank you, everybody, for listening. <laughs> and never forget, everyone's a critic. I'm sorry, what?